May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Although it actually falls on January 6th, we're marking tonight as the Feast of the Epiphany. With its story of the visit of the Magi to the child Jesus, it effectively draws to a close our Christmas celebrations. Next week's Gospel will tell the story of Jesus' baptism by John at the River Jordan. While that's also a kind of a birth story, it includes the divine proclamation, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. Tonight's reading gives us the final glimpse of the Christ child, of Jesus as a baby. Now the tradition of marking Epiphany as a feast day separate from Christmas is an ancient one. And it recognizes that the narrative from Matthew is quite distinct from the story told in Luke. Tells of these magi, these travelers who've gone a good distance from when they first sighted the star. When they finally do arrive in Bethlehem, they find that the baby and his mother are no longer in a stable, but staying in a house. Apparently, some time has passed, in other words, which we reflect in telling the story here in the early days of January. That word, epiphany, is from the Greek, epiphania, which means an appearing or a manifestation. And it usually implies that a light bulb has clicked on. Now I see. Think of it as being the ancient Greek equivalent of a eureka moment, though admittedly, epiphany is a more evocative and elegant word. I mean, honestly, if we called it the Feast of the Eureka, it doesn't have quite the same poetic grip, does it? But in a real sense, that's precisely Matthew's focus. It's Eureka. We found it, even though they didn't know what they'd been looking for. These seekers are identified as wise men in most of our English translations, but the original Greek word is magi, which can mean astrologers, star watchers, dream interpreters, even wonder workers. These magi are star watchers and very clearly outsiders from Judaism. For although they've set out on their journey to seek the child who's been born king of the Jews, they go first to the royal city of Jerusalem. It's not an illogical move to make if you're looking for a child born to be king, unless you know the Jewish tradition that the true heir to King David will be born in Bethlehem. Their star watching could only take them so far, in other words, and then they needed the Jewish scriptures to take them the next step. And so set back on the road to make the last short leg of their journey, they again behold the star hovering in the sky. And while Bethlehem is only seven kilometers from Jerusalem, in so many ways it is worlds apart from what they thought they might find. It's not a palace with a baby attended by servants, but a simple home where a peasant woman is caring for her child. And yet, Matthew tells us, on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. 
Whatever expectations those Magi might have had when their journey began, here in this home, the sight of that mother and her child drops them to their knees. These royal gifts that Matthew says they've brought with them, gifts that would have had a natural place in Herod's palace, are then offered to this baby. One can only imagine the look on the faces of those young parents. Well, the story will go on from there to get rather more complicated. Herod will fly into a rage and will send his death squads into Bethlehem to slaughter all of the male children under two. Herod will do anything to preserve his power, anything. But on Epiphany, we stop just short of that episode and focus instead on the strange eureka moment of these Gentile astrologers. By training the lens of his camera on these characters, Matthew is anticipating the very thing with which he will end his gospel, namely that what this Jesus brings is meant not only for Israel but for all of the nations, all peoples. The Magi come from a very different culture, in fact, a very different religious tradition. They're informed by a very different set of assumptions and beliefs, yet the child is born for them too, and for us. We live in a very different time, a very different culture, and our worldview is informed by a very different set of assumptions and beliefs from that of ancient Bethlehem. Yet this child has come for us too. I like how N.T. Wright puts it. Think about what it means for Jesus to be the true king of the Jews and then come to him. Come to him by whatever route you can and with the best gifts you can find. Here on this feast day of Epiphany, when we tell a story of how a surprising new light was cast into the lives of those magi, probably disrupting them for the rest of their lives, on which we dare to proclaim that such a light is still cast into our lives, we who live two millennia later, cast sometimes in a surprising and, yes, even disruptive way, on such a feast night we are going to bear witness to another kind of new beginning. Dave Newsom and Judith Friesen are about to enter into a covenant of marriage. By each giving their consent to the other, by exchanging solemn vows, and then giving and receiving rings. That they've chosen to do this in the context of our Sunday worship reflects their desire to set their whole marriage in the context of worship and of Christian community. That they do this on a liturgical feast night that celebrates an eye-opening, life-changing Eureka epiphany? Well, isn't that a grand framework for setting out on a marriage? Of course, just as the Magi would need to sort out what life would be like after they knelt before the child Jesus, Dave and Judith are going to have to do some sorting out of what it will mean to live together under this covenant of marriage. 
Anyone who is married will tell you that some of that sorting will take serious work, that not every day will be Eureka, but it is your starting point here tonight. And as we all stand with you to bear witness to this new beginning, you need to know that you are not going to have to make a go of it all on your own. In fact, you can't. You can't do it alone. Two becoming one still needs community, still needs family. And so, one of the things that we will do in this liturgy right away, and we gather the wedding party up at the front, and I will ask Dave and Judith if they will give their consent to this, give their life into each other. And they're going to say one after the other, I will. Not I do. I do is too easy. I do means I feel like it now. I will means I will do this, even on the days that don't feel like Eureka. I will. Then I'm going to turn them in faith to face the congregation, and I'm going to ask Dave's parents and Judith's parents to stand up. And I'm going to ask you, parents of Dave and Judith, do you give your blessing to this marriage? It's printed in your order of service, so you can follow this. But the answer then is, we do, present tense. Right now, here in this place, we do, we give our blessing. Good on you, go for it, Eureka. (laughs) And then I'm going to have all of you stand. And they will still be facing this gathering. Some who are here specifically to be here with them. Some are here because this is your worshiping community, so you're connected to them. Some of you maybe just walked in on a cold night and stumbled into a wedding. I'm going to ask you to stand. And I'm going to ask you, you are witnesses to these vows now being made. Will you do all in your power to support and uphold this marriage? And the answer to that is we will. Again, it's moved from present tense into we will ongoing because they need you. They need you to walk with them in good times and in bad, to be community for them, to be circles of friendship and circles of worship and prayer to help them build their life together. And then and only then will they avow themselves one to another. Now, of course, that can all sound very serious. And it is. And sometimes when people talk about marriage, they make it sound like dreadfully hard work. And it can be. But it's also a feast. And tonight, following this liturgy, we will feast together. They've brought some wonderful food and some some drink, hot drink, to share. And we're going to feast together and celebrate and laugh and play and tell stories. We're going to do all of that together because feasting is good. But feasting is also something that should symbolize your life together. In good times and in bad, dare to celebrate the possible and ask for the blessing of God and community as you do it. Amen.